Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from the WQMR newsroom. An unknown sniper has fired three shots at President Kennedy in Dallas. Repeating this bulletin received at WQMR from the United Press. A sniper has fired at President Kennedy. Now the re remainder of the bulletin, just clearing, says that a sniper has seriously wounded the President in downtown Dallas. Repeating, the United Press says that a sniper seriously wounded President Kennedy in downtown Dallas today, perhaps fatally. Bob, do you have more? Just, just in, Ed. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas have been... That was the way it started. It was 1.36 p.m. Washington time. The day, Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The first dark day. This is Ed Winton. When I first saw that report, it was still on the news ticker. I couldn't believe what was being typed. In the moments following the first bulletin, all of us reacted in our own way. It was unbelievable. It was a tragedy. It was true. The reports from Dallas kept coming in. Wounds in the governor's chest were clearly visible. In all the turmoil, it was impossible to determine whether Secret Service agents and Dallas police returned the fire. Bob, uh, Parkland High At 1.48, we brought Father Schaefer of nearby St. Andrew's Catholic Church to our studios. We asked our listeners of all faiths to join us in prayer. Then, at 1.51, we went back to the news. Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas have been cut down by assassins' bullets. They were shot as they toured downtown Dallas in an open car. The president... His limp body in the arms of his wife was rushed to Parkland Hospital. The governor was taken to the same hospital. Now this report, Clint Hill, a Secret Service agent assigned to Mrs. Kennedy, was overheard telling the First Lady, the President is dead. Repeating, this is unconfirmed that Clint Hill, a Secret Service agent... Then more the reports came in from Parkland Hospital. ...lifted from the rear of the White House touring car. Mr. Kennedy has been rushed to an emergency room in the hospital. They are now at Parkland Memorial Hospital, a few miles from downtown Dallas. Bob, anything else we're, coming we're in now? In a few minutes, I read the most tragic item right, a Bob, newsman can give. The torn piece of teletype paper contained just three words... Flash. President dead. Now, who fired those shots? Where were they fired from? How many men? Why? The questions, the rumors, the anger of the day swept through us all. Then a report of an attempted arrest in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas, just across the Dallas River. A policeman, J.D. Tippett, was shot and killed when a subject resisted arrest. The nation cried out, capture that man. Later, Dallas police did just that. Lee Harvey Oswald was brought into custody. At Dallas's love field aboard Air Force One, Lyndon Baines Johnson was sworn in as the 36th president of the United States. Moments later, the big jet carrying the body of our late president headed back here to Washington with our new president. Throughout the afternoon, the nation seemed to be transfixed to a radio or television set, hoping, I suppose, to hear someone say, it's not true. Instead, they heard the details as the pieces were put together that are now history. It was a tragic day filled with emotion. As numbness began to set in, WQMR listeners heard this report from Capitol Hill by Barry Clark. This is Barry Clark from Washington. Several hours ago, the skies were blue and clear. The air was cool, and afternoon had begun. 
It was a pleasant day in November. And then, agony. The world was picked up and shaken, and the pieces fell. The skies over Washington darkened, and the city was gray. A man had died by the hand of an assassin. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 35th President of the United States, was dead. People all over this city stood mute and dumb. Their eyes lent tears and their hearts throbbed. The streets, once paths for the routine traffic of the day, suddenly held thousands of automobiles and buses taking the people home. Home to their private tears, home to their families. Home to hold themselves together in a day of pain. And beneath the gray skies, beneath the sinking sun, flags knelt to half-stand. The capital stood silently, and we watched it for strength and prayed for its wisdom. The White House was in the trees of Pennsylvania Avenue, and around the fence surrounding it, people bowed their heads and prayed. It was early afternoon when the skies were clear and the world was a parade, and a man waved with a smile, his wife by his side. It was early afternoon, and then it was gray. November 22nd, 1963, a day of agony, a day of pain, a day of death. November 22nd, 1963, the end of a man's world, and the day every man knelt to pray, and pray for guidance and the wisdom to carry on. November 22nd, 1963, the sun has set, night has come on, gray skies have become black. And John F. Kennedy, our president, sleeps forever. This is Barry Clark for WQMR. So concluded November 22nd, 1963, the first dark day. Saturday, November 23rd, the second dark day. As if joining in the country's grief, dark clouds hung low over Washington. Rain mingling with the tears of a nation, a world. The world awoke slowly, painfully this day, hoping, praying, that the events of yesterday had in some way been just a horrible nightmare. But all you had to do was turn on the radio. Listen for a moment to the terse reports coming in from Dallas, from Washington. And this prayer, this hope, somehow became a terrible mockery. This is WQMR newsman Bill Doty. It was my job to cover the Saturday news beat, to relay to our listeners the events of this day as they unfolded. For Jacqueline Kennedy, this day began in the pre-dawn hours at Bethesda Naval Hospital. It was here the late president's body had been taken the night before for embalming. At 4.30 Saturday morning, Mrs. Kennedy, still wearing the blood-stained clothes she had worn from Dallas, accompanied the body of her husband as they left the hospital to make their final trip to the White House together. In the east room of the White House, John F. Kennedy's body, in a flag-draped coffin, lay in repose flanked by a guard of five men. A private mass for immediate members of the family was held at 10.30. After that, John Fitzgerald Kennedy belonged to the world, 
as throughout this gloomy Saturday, a host of dignitaries entered the White House to pay their respects to their departed leader. The procession of limousines rolling up to the White House carried such men as Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman, Senate GOP leader Everett Dirksen, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, even Alabama's Governor George Wallace was there. But even as this procession of grieving notables was entering the White House, plans were underway for the public to pay its respects. On Sunday, the body of John F. Kennedy was to be carried up Pennsylvania Avenue on a caisson drawn by seven horses to the Capitol, there to lie in state in the huge rotunda. Thousands would be lining the route of the cortege, but for the millions who would not be able to be there in person, preparations were being made this day, this Saturday, to broadcast a description of the sorrowful procession. WQMR set up seven vantage points, stretching from near the White House to the Capitol Rotunda. Meanwhile, in Dallas on this Saturday, November 23rd, the case was building up against the president's accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, though at this point the case against Oswald was circumstantial. One major clue, the rifle, which was sent to Washington for examination. Oswald's Russian-born wife, Marina, told police her husband owned such a weapon. Furthermore, it was revealed the FBI had in their possession a letter sent to a Chicago mail-order house earlier in the year ordering a rifle similar to the murder weapon. According to the FBI, the handwriting in the letter was that of Oswald's. Dallas police were claiming the case was a cinch, although throughout the long hours of grilling, the meek-voiced Oswald denied killing anyone. Listen closely now and hear the actual voice of Lee Oswald as he answered reporters in the hallway of the Dallas jail. I really don't know what, what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything. Something I'm accused of, uh, of uh, murdering the police. I know nothing more than that, and I do request uh, for someone to come forward to give me uh, a legal assistance. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. You have been. Nobody said what? Sir? You have been. Nobody said what? The 35th president of the United States lay in repose in the White House. His accused assassin prepared for his second night in a Dallas jail. And so came to an end, Saturday, November 23rd, 1963, the second dark day. This is Warner Wolf. On Sunday morning, the 24th of November, I was anchorman stationed at our main studios with direct lines to and from WQMR reporters located at various vantage points along the route between the White House and the Capitol building. At exactly 1 p.m. Washington time, the funeral procession left the north portico of the White House. Only 30 minutes before, and 1,385 miles away, in the basement of police headquarters in Dallas, Texas, reporters waited anxiously for an elevator to descend. At 12.32, the elevator came to an immediate halt and outstepped the accused presidential assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, 
heavily flanked on both sides by law enforcement officers. And then, out of nowhere, a man later identified as Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby darted from the crowd and fired a 38 caliber pistol at point-blank range into the stomach of Oswald. As pandemonium broke loose, Oswald was rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, the same hospital President Kennedy was taken two days before. And as fate would have it, Oswald, the accused assassin, succumbed on an emergency operating table, ironically only 12 feet from where the victim, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, had passed away 48 hours earlier. Ruby was immediately subdued and taken into custody by police officials, where he was held pending further investigation. Back here in the nation's capital, the funeral procession had left the White House and turned on to 15th Street. Here is the actual report WQMR listeners heard. The drums are draped in black crepe. A contingent of District of Columbia policemen leads the procession, followed by a military band with members of the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Army. You can hear the drums, the crowd, many of the women weeping, Drum sound. We're opposite the Treasury Building. The drums are just beginning to turn off 15th Street, once again onto Pennsylvania Avenue. The procession continues with a platoon of Navy men, their rifles, bayonets affixed. now of the military, an Air Force General, an Admiral, a Marine Commandant, and then the Stars and Stripes, the Honor Guard, an Air Force man, a Marine carrying the flag, and a Navy man. Three members of the clergy follow about 50 paces behind. The hats of the spectators, the men, are removed. The servicemen that line the streets come to attention. As the caisson carrying the body of John F. Kennedy passes directly beneath us. Six horses and a seventh horse to guide, pulling the caisson. Members of the armed forces, all enlisted men, surround the caisson on which the casket lies with the American flag and its glorious red, white, and blue, its glorious red, white, and blue colors covering the casket. And then a horse without a rider. The caisson moves on to Pennsylvania Avenue and now comes the Kennedy family. We can see Carolyn Kennedy in the first limousine. Jacqueline Kennedy, John, license plates MA100, a shiny black limousine. 
There are one, two, three, approximately ten cars in the procession. We can see, obviously, other young Kennedys, the trademark of the family written on their face, probably the family of Attorney General Robert Kennedy in the fifth limousine. Looking back up towards the street, we see another cordon of military police. We are now going to switch to another vantage point. And we are now facing Pennsylvania Avenue. In a moment, Barry Clark at 12th in Pennsylvania will take over because the funeral procession has completed passing the Treasury Building at 15th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. Many of the crowd, thousands of people here in the bright sunshine following the procession down the street and on the sidelines. Ed Winton at the Treasury Building, returning you to WQMR Studios in Warner Wolf. As the procession continued towards the Capitol, our reporters described the march. Here is Barry Clark at 12th and Pennsylvania Avenue. And we are waiting. The citizens of Washington, of Maryland, of Virginia, of the nation, of the world, are waiting. The citizens of America pay tribute to a dead president. The drums, the drums, the Navy men, the officers, the flag, the horses, the dead president. Mr. Kennedy, the place is not the same. We'll never be the same again. I miss your voice, the music of your smile, your kind face. I miss your courage, the glint of life in your eyes. So very much, I miss you. We miss you here. The morning has ended. WQMR newsman Bob Welch's vantage point was 9th and Pennsylvania Avenue. The casket, President John F. Kennedy is now passing our window here on Pennsylvania Avenue. People have, of course, removed their hats and people have a look in their face. I shall never forget. In following the case on the presidential flag is the horse without a rider and with the stirrups turned around. From here we can see Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Caroline Kennedy is seated on his lap. She is looking out the window. He is talking to her, trying to explain perhaps something that is very difficult. Members of the Kennedy family are following in the procession now. It is Pennsylvania Avenue runs into Constitution Avenue at 4th Street. That is where WQMR newsman Cliff Wells reported from.
by the chairman, General Maxwell Taylor, and with the Navy Chief of Operations, David Admiral David McDonald, and Army Chief General Earl Wheeler, Air Force Chief General Curtis LeMay, Marine Corps Commandant General David Shoup, and the Coast Guard Admiral Edwin Rowland. On Capitol Hill itself was WQMR News Editor Ken Rogers. A 21-gun salute is echoing across the plaza here at the Capitol building as the casket of John Fitzgerald Kennedy lies on a caisson at almost the exact spot where less than three years ago he was pronounced the president of the United States. Now the Navy band salutes their fallen chiefs as the honor guard prepares to lift the casket from the caisson and carry it into the rotunda of the Capitol where it will lie in state until tomorrow. It's expected that hundreds of thousands of people will pay their last respects to the fallen president. The city was a study of contrasts. On Capitol Hill, hundreds of thousands of people began to stand in line. A few blocks away, a different view. Here is the way Ed Winton described it to WQMR listeners. Contrast to the ceremony now taking place in the rotunda of the Capitol, 15th and Pennsylvania Avenue, proceeds almost in normal. There's the traffic, the gaily colored cars, the policemen directing traffic, the red light and the green light. There's also the television cameramen across the way winding in their cables, putting away their TV cameras to prepare along with us for tomorrow and John F. Kennedy's last ride in the city and in the nation, in the world that loved him so much at Winton at the Treasury Building. There were 52 Sundays in the year 1963, but that fateful number 47, November 24th, shall always be remembered in the annals of history. This is Warner Wolf. The time, 6.45 p.m., Sunday evening, November 24th. The cover of Night Had Come Peacefully to Washington, the body of John F. Kennedy had been mournfully borne through the streets of the nation's capital and solemnly lay in state in the rotunda of the huge Capitol building. I waited in line that Sunday, and as I paid my respects to the late president, I thought about the events of the past evening. There were many things. The brisk, cold Washington weather, cold that you didn't mind at first, but later seemed to settle in your bones and chill you clean through. I remember the faces of countless policemen, the sound of their voices. Yes, sir, the line is 22 blocks long. No, I don't know how long it will take. Please keep moving. Yes, the line was long. At one time, it stretched to 30 blocks with people 15 or 20 abreast on the sidewalk, often spilling into the streets. 
I remember the people, the young, the old, the wealthy, the poor. I remember seeing the babies in their father's arms, the young children riding piggyback, all bundled in layers of winter clothing, all coming to pay their respects to John F. Kennedy. I remember standing in the long line, the line shaped like a huge horseshoe, stretching for blocks in a direction away from the Capitol, winding around a park and heading back toward the Capitol building. Hours later, as we wound through that park, the line now faced the Capitol. There was to me then a, a moment of irony as we stood in Lincoln Park, as it is called, stood under a statue of Abraham Lincoln. The statue, as I remember it, emancipation. And Lincoln was freeing a young colored man from the chains of slavery. That statue faces the Capitol and somehow on that night seemed to come alive with meaning. The night air was shrill with the wail of sirens as people fainted, became ill, or fell down. As we neared the Capitol, one ambulance rushed away bearing a woman who was about to have a baby. Ahead of us at the Capitol, Mrs. John F. Kennedy had come once again to be with her husband. After a few moments in the rotunda, Mrs. Kennedy and the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, emerged from the brightly lit building. Not many people were aware of the fact that she was there. A few saw her, murmured sympathies. Mrs. Kennedy stopped for a moment to talk with a group of Catholic nuns in the line, then left by car. After eight hours in line, we finally stood on the steps of the Capitol building, a building bathed in white light. Slowly, we walked up the steps, through the entrance, passing through a room filled with floral bouquets, flowers from the government of West Germany, from the King of Sweden, from various clubs and organizations. And then, the rotunda. The first thing that struck me was the blinding glare of the television lights. After my eyes became accustomed to the glare, they, they focused on the casket in the center of the rotunda. The body of the president lay in a closed mahogany casket atop the catafalque. Some people, as they passed, bowed their heads in deep prayer. Some wept, and many, once they had passed the flag-draped casket, for some reason did not look back, but continued on through another flower-bedecked room, down the steps, and out into the cold night air. The outer rim of the rotunda was lined with platforms bearing television cameras and reporters, and with the exception of that brief, blinding moment on entering, no one seemed to notice them. In perhaps the, the space of one minute, just one minute, we had been ushered through the rotunda, and in that moment, somehow had managed to pay our respects to John F. Kennedy. A long, cold, and unforgettable night. A night in which many Americans turned to their loved ones, their neighbors, friends, even sought out perfect strangers to remark, I just can't believe it. And even after the events of this Sunday night, I find it hard to believe, too. This is Bob Welch, WQMR News. Monday, a clear, crisp, solemn day in the nation's capital, the day the president was to be buried. WQMR News was on the scene as the band played, and the Capitol Rotunda was closed to the public. More than 500,000 persons had filed through the rotunda to pay their respects to the fallen president as his body lay in state. The doors were closed, then Jacqueline Kennedy, escorted by her two brothers-in-law, arrived. The day before, Mrs. Kennedy had paid three visits to the rotunda. On this day, four servicemen, one from each service, stood at each corner of the casket. The casket bearers at one side, 
The casket was moved from the rotunda, preceded by a color guard holding the American flag, followed by a solitary sailor carrying the presidential flag. He is Edward W. Namath, a member of the Honor Guard, stationed at the Anacostia Naval Station. Throughout the morning city, bells toll for the fallen chief. Outside on the Capitol Plaza, ruffles and flourishes, a solemn hymn and a 21-gun salute. Then the body of President Kennedy goes down Pennsylvania Avenue on the trip to the White House for the last time, on its way to St. Matthew's Cathedral for the burial mass. Here's how WQMR listeners heard Bob Welch describe the mass to be said for the fallen chief. reporter Bob Welch with the story about the solemn pontifical mass that will be celebrated this morning for John F. Kennedy. The mass will be celebrated at St. Matthew's Cathedral by Richard Cardinal Cushing and is a pontifical requiem mass. It is what is called a low mass. Now this means that all the prayers of the mass will be spoken and not sung as would be the case if this were a high mass. A pontifical mass is one that is celebrated by anyone who has been consecrated a bishop. This mass has the same prayers as the mass that is celebrated every day in all Catholic churches. Its distinctive difference is that all the prayers will be directed with mention of the deceased John Fitzgerald Kennedy and his immortal soul. This is the mass that will be celebrated this morning at St. Matthew's Cathedral in the nation's capital. And in the world, the sadness of the occasion is reflected in the doleful music played by the Navy Band as the President's body is taken for the last time to the White House. And the six white horses pull the caisson into the driveway. At the White House, where President Kennedy's body had been taken, great heads of state from all over the world gathered to pay their respects to the fallen American chief. On hand were General Charles de Gaulle of France, his military tunic bearer of decoration, Queen Frederica of Greece, Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia in his black uniform with dazzling braid, Uthant, Secretary General of the United Nations, Prince Philip from Britain, and Mikoyan from Russia. Besides the bereaved family, former Presidents Truman and Eisenhower, members of the Supreme Court, and America's military leaders too had gathered to follow the body of President John F. Kennedy. In the background, the bagpipes wail as the Black Watch plays on this solemn occasion, and the horse-drawn caisson, the riderless horse, Mrs. Kennedy, and heads of state from all nations down the driveway onto St. Matthew's Cathedral. As the procession approached the church, WQMR listeners heard Bill Doty describe the scene. of this day has begun to unfold. The crowd, which has now grown to a tremendous size, almost an unbelievable size, is watching now as marching units representing the various services 
march so slowly up Connecticut Avenue in the direction of St. Matthew's Cathedral. A unit now approaching as appears to be the Air Force band. The drums beating. The drums sheathed in black. They're right below us now. marching units and now a small group of automobiles driving slowly past us of course when the main part of the cortege arrives the dignitaries will be all on foot we hear the sound of bagpipes off in the distance approaching us coming up Connecticut Avenue from the direction of the White House. The crowd, hardly a murmur from the crowd. So many children in the crowd, wrapped in blankets by their parents to keep them off the cold, as it is cold here on Connecticut Avenue. Sunny, but very cold. People have been standing here for hours. Many have brought along their own individual methods of gaining a better vantage point from which to see this procession. Step ladders, oil drums. In fact, it was from an oil drum just beneath us a few moments ago. A tragic accident occurred. A woman attempting to climb the oil drum slipped and fell, striking her head on the sidewalk below us here on Connecticut Avenue. Fortunately, first aid units were close by and they cut their way through the thick crowd to go to the woman's aid, and she has now been removed. We don't know her condition, but she apparently was knocked unconscious by the fall. A marching unit now of the United States Marines passing us by. The white tops to their hats glinting in the sun, as is the gleaming tips of the bayonets atop their rifles. And now, pipers, scotch pipers below us. Nine of them marching so slowly as the bagpipes wail. And now, the moment, the terribly sad moment the crowd has all been waiting for. Seven white horses drawing the caisson, draped with the American flag, coming so slowly past this crowd. The Air Force personnel lining both sides of Connecticut Avenue and the policemen with them, standing at rigid attention, saluting now, as the caisson is passing directly below us now. Caisson bearing the casket containing the mortal remains of the man we are honoring here today, the late President 
John F. Kennedy. It's directly below us now. The slow clatter of horses' hooves. The slow turning of the black case on wheels. The riderless horse, saber attached, being led directly behind the case on. And now the dignitaries are directly below us. Senator Ted Kennedy, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, between them, Mrs. Kennedy, walking head erect, black veil covering her beautiful face, walking directly up the center of Connecticut Avenue. Behind them, directly, our new president, Lyndon Johnson. And now the host of foreign dignitaries, Emperor Haile Selassie is the first one we see, resplendent in the uniform of his country. Towering head and shoulders above practically everyone else, France's President Charles de Gaulle. He is dressed in the tan uniform. And the crowd is passing so rapidly we can only just pick out. Actually, they're not moving too rapidly, but there are so many of them, it's hard to pick out individual faces as they move along. Japanese Prime Minister Ikeda. The tall, handsome face of Prince Philip of England, representing Queen Elizabeth II. All of the men in long black coats, the women in black coats with black hats. Most of the men, in fact, all of them are bareheaded, carrying their hats in their hands as they move past us slowly. More dignitaries continue to pass by, all on foot, moving slowly in the direction of St. Matthew's Cathedral, where in just a moment, funeral services will be held for the late President John F. Kennedy. That was WQMR newsman Bill Doty at the corner of Connecticut and L, a block away on M Street at St. Matthew's Cathedral. After the procession arrived, Cardinal Cushing conducted the funeral mass. service was conducted, the caisson was turned around and brought back to a position in front of the church. Dozens of limousines were lined up to carry the Kennedy family, President and Mrs. Johnson, and other dignitaries to Arlington. The church doors were open, and the honor guard came to stiff attention. Flag bearers with the American colors and the presidential flag stood outside the entrance. The joint chiefs and military aides saluted, and the honor guards moved rifles to present arms. The late president's mother cried as she left the church. Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy seemed composed. She had John Jr. by her left hand and held Caroline in her right hand. The family paused at the curbstone while the coffin was placed aboard the caisson, and the band played Hail to the Chief. Cardinal Cushing used a handkerchief to wipe tears from his eyes. It was a solemn scene. The president's widow leaned over once to talk to John Jr. 
and John John stood at attention and saluted his father's casket. Then bells pealed softly as the funeral services ended. And at 1.30, the caisson began rolling on President Kennedy's final journey. During the past three days, WQMR had received many requests for Barry Clark to read his works of prose, composed on the moment as Barry covered the four dark days for WQMR News. Down Connecticut Avenue onto 17th Street, past the Lincoln Memorial to Arlington Cemetery, as the funeral procession slowly wound its way through the streets and the sounds of solemn drums floated over Washington, WQMR listeners heard Barry Clark read his own works, and here are the actual off-the-air recordings. Mr. Kennedy, the place is not the same, will never be the same again. I miss your voice, the music of your smile, your kind face. I miss your courage, the glint of life in your eyes. So very much, I miss you. The morning has ended and the sun is high but falling. The tears are for you. The flags flutter for you. The people here are for you. The silence is for you. The eternal memory is for you. So very much we miss you. But you are gone, old friend, and something gentle in this life is lost forever. What shall the autumn wind sing now that our captain is no more? What shall the dust of the prairie do now that our captain has gone? The ship you mastered remains on the stormy seas. The skies are dark and the wind is not still, but it will sail on. Your task was hard and your job was lonely. Your shoulders bore the heavy load. The burden of courage on trial, the burden of decision, the burden of a nation's life. And there was the burden of death, which brought you sleep. Now, sleep on, O Captain, and the ship will roll on. Sleep on in your never-waking sleep, and the course will be steered. Sleep on, for you have not died in vain. Out of Massachusetts he came. Young and graceful and handsome he was. There was a look of wisdom in his face and there was dignity in the soft look of his eyes. There was also the mark of destiny for immortality. He walked with measured strides, seeking the light of knowledge. His body was strong after the tests of courage. His mind was alert and remarkable. He was a giant oak chopped down in the forest of November. The shot has rung out. The echo lingers, but the damage is done. There is no fury now. He sleeps 
and soon his dust shall mingle with his native earth once more. No more to smile his smile, no more to brush aside that boyish wisp of hair above his brow. No more to show his quick wit, to point his finger to emphasize, to listen, to ponder, to reply. And the horses move slowly on. The horses carry him past. The horses move with bowed heads as if they understand and are sad. The horses, the gray horses, the gray, gray horses, their names must be death, their leader, then pain and sorrow, then anguish and grief, then remorse. And the riderless seventh, the horse of the commander-in-chief, the seventh horse is eternity. It is a bright and clear afternoon. The sky is so blue and the air so mild, and yet it isn't. It isn't at all. It's cold and lonely and dark and dismal. It is an afternoon of agony. A great man has died, and a great people weep on a bright and clear, dark and dismal afternoon in November. And beyond the tears of the thousands gathered here for the cortege of President Kennedy, beyond the buildings of government, the cherry blossom trees so bare, beyond the Washington Monument and the reflecting pool, sits the martyred Lincoln. His woodsman's hands clutching the arms of his chair. His expression gaunt, his eyes sad. Lincoln, the man. Lincoln, the leader. Lincoln, the wise. Lincoln, the great emancipator. Now, Lincoln looks to these proceedings, his head in his hands, and he is crying too. The Lincoln Memorial, the bridge, the pillars, the people, the colors, the flags, the drums, always the drums, the horses' hooves on the pavement, a caisson, a casket, a body, and a flag. Blue skies over Washington, blue skies over the hills of Virginia, blue skies over an open grave that waits. The drums, the drums, the people, the people. The dead, the dead who are waiting, the dead who are coming. 
the sad, sad day of November, a day we will never forget. He was a boy in Massachusetts. He was a young man in Washington. He was slightly older in the White House. He was very young when he died. No more will he see the Capitol. No more the White House. No more a girl called Caroline. No more a boy called John John. No more his mother's smile. No more his father's hand. No more the help of brothers and sisters. No more Christmas Eves. Not another day for Thanksgiving. No more football games on a Saturday afternoon. No more pleasant night beneath the stars. Fades thy light, and afar goeth day, cometh night, and a star leadeth all, speedeth all to their rest. The sun is high, the sun is so high over Arlington. The funeral procession is almost at Arlington Cemetery. While the cortege was passing through the streets of Washington, WQMR, in its own way, was paying a final tribute to the late John F. Kennedy. By this time, the procession had arrived at Arlington Cemetery. Mrs. Kennedy walked to the grave beside the Attorney General. As the coffin was moved toward the grave, the President's plane, Air Force One, zoomed above. And once again, the Cardinal conducted the religious portion of the service. In the name of the Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Eternal is grand unto him, O Lord. And his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed to the mercy of God rest in as Cardinal Cushing began the prayer, de Gaulle stood at rigid attention. On one side of the French president was the Irish president, and on the other the tiny figure of the emperor of Ethiopia. The sun sank lower, and long shadows began to fall across the mourners. Noticeably, to the left of the grave was Russia's Miko Yan. And at this point, the battery fired the 21-gun salute.
The Attorney General led Mrs. Kennedy to the head of the grave as the bugler sounded taps. At the conclusion of taps, the body bearers folded the interment flag, and the folded flag was then handed to the superintendent of the ceremony for presentation to Mrs. Kennedy. The cemetery superintendent walked to the widow and handed her the flag. Then she was handed a torch to light the eternal flame at the head of her husband's grave. She touched the torch to the flame, then handed it to the president's brother, Robert, who also placed the torch on the flame and then handed it to their other brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, who repeated the process. And Mrs. Kennedy walked from the grave. The flame, lit by Mrs. Kennedy and her two brothers-in-law, burned brightly behind the polished mahogany coffin as it waited to be lowered finally into the soil. Then Barry Clark, speaking for all of us at WQMR, ended our coverage of the four dark days. Goodbye, Mr. Kennedy. Rest in peace. Sleep the long sleep. Sleep forever. Goodbye, Mr. Kennedy. We will not forget. <laughs>